Uh, let's ask God to help us understand his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that once again we can gather around your word, expecting you to speak to us, uh, your people, through faith in Jesus. Uh, we pray that you would grant me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. And we pray in your mercy you would give us all understanding of your word. Uh, but more that uh, through your spirit we would be those who hear and put what you say into practice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how would you describe the state of Christianity in Australia? Perhaps like this, marginalised, easily ignored, corrupted both doctrinally and morally, perhaps even under threat, struggling to get its message heard, the message that Jesus is Lord, the one with authority to judge and forgive. How might you describe your own heart? Committed to making disciples in obedience to Jesus' command, but disappointed that so few are being saved? Concerned and grieved for the nation, seeing the dominance of lies about or disregard of the living God, the arrogance of the wicked, the grievous impact of sin, of greed and sexual immorality? Knowing these things provoke judgment and perhaps fearing more and greater judgment to come. Frustrated about the state of the church, its lack of holiness, its worldliness, its distraction. Frustrated maybe even with yourself, your own struggle with sin or your lack of gospel opportunity or your inability to use such opportunities well to find the words that cut through with the truth and all the time aware as a believer of the seriousness of this life, that after death comes judgment, a judgment that results in an eternal separation of the righteous from the unrighteous, yet knowing God's good intention, that he wants all people to be saved, and convicted by the gospel of Jesus as his love for sinners, for rebels, because he has loved you, and of the power of the gospel, because he has saved you. Here we are, frail, flawed, frustrated, conscious of our weakness, conscious often of our own failings, conscious that we live in a society that does not know God and longing, longing for the salvation of others, of our family, of our neighbours, longing for the gospel word to be heard and believed for many to turn in repentance and faith to Jesus and find life and love. Now, does that description of our society, of our hearts, in part or whole resonate with you? And if so, what are we to do? Well, like the Lord's people do so often in the Psalms, we should turn to the Lord with our frailty and frustration, our longing and grief. Psalm 12, save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Or Psalm 67, let the peoples praise you, O God. Or Psalm 83, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. We should pray, shouldn't we, to our God, Father, Son and Spirit, the living God. We should turn to the Lord, for only he can turn people to himself. 
He is the one who can raise the dead, bring the deaf to hear, the blind to see. He is the one who can cause the gospel to be heard. He is the one who can raise up gospel workers, give us faithful and bold preachers of the gospel of Jesus. And he is the one who is rich in mercy, the saviour of sinners, who can glorify himself in the weakness of his people. In our disarray, dismay and powerlessness, we should turn to the Lord, who alone can save. Now, your elders are convinced of this, and if you're a believer, I hope you also are convinced of this. And your elders, the session, are convinced that we should turn to the Lord not only individually, but collectively, together. And for this reason, we are starting a prayer meeting next year on the third Wednesday of every month in the evening for the explicit purpose of praying for the Lord to work in glorifying the Son as Saviour amongst us and throughout the world by turning the hearts of many back to him, bringing them to repentance and faith in Jesus. A prayer meeting where we pray for salvation for the making of disciples of Jesus throughout the world, a prayer meeting where we pray that the Lord would raise up many labourers into his harvest and for the faithfulness and fruitfulness of the gospel workers he has already given us. Now, we are so convinced that praying together for these things should be a priority that we're shutting down all other midweek meetings of the church that week so that the whole church can gather for prayer or as many of us as possible. You see, we don't want that prayer meeting to be one meeting amongst many meetings in that week. So in the third week, for example, there will be no growth group meetings, no other meetings. We consider gathering as a church for prayer, prayer for the Lord to be exalted as saviour of the world through his gospel being preached and believed. We consider gathering as a church for prayer that important. Now this is a change to the routine of our life together, a change that some might find, like any change, uncomfortably disruptive. But we think it's an important and a timely change to our life together, a change appropriate to our times. Why do we think this? Why will we make this change to our common life? And why do we want you to embrace this change and come and pray together? So firstly, why pray? Why believe a prayer meeting is the appropriate response of the Lord's people to the state of affairs in our society and in the Christian church? Well, it's because we see in God's word that the Lord meets the longing and weakness of his people with his good commands and promises about prayer. You see, prayer is commanded. He commanded his people to pray in both the Old and New Testaments. For example, in need, God's Old Testament people were told to humble themselves and pray and seek the Lord's face and turn from their wicked ways because he would hear them. In the New Testament, there are many commands to pray and there are references in the outline. There is especially a command that we pray for all people. And that is a prayer for the salvation of all people and for the preservation of the circumstances where the gospel can be preached to all people. First of all, writes Paul, then I urge that supplication, 
prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. So we're told there who to pray for, all people. Now that's not every single person in the world for we don't know them all and could never pray for them all even if we had a printout with billions of names on it. right? It's calling us to pray for all kinds of people. It's saying no one is excluded. No one is excluded by their race, their politics, their sexuality, their religion from our prayers. So whoever we can think of to pray for, we should be praying for. And we're urged, exhorted, encouraged to pray for all kinds of people. And this, says Paul, first of all. He's making it the priority in the life of the Ephesian congregation and in our congregation. And the types of prayer that we can make for all people is deliberately inclusive there. Whatever kind of prayer you can think of, (coughs) you can pray. But we're not told explicitly what to pray for all people, the content of this prayer. But the reasons given for this prayer in verses 3 to 7 and the purpose given for our particular prayers for kings and rulers in verse 2 makes it plain that Paul is calling for the Ephesians and us to pray for the salvation of all and to do that first of all. So let's think about the reasons Paul gives to support this call to pray for all people. He supports it by three arguments and each of these reasons in a sense is big Uh, I'm not going to expand on them, really just note them. But firstly, he says we should pray for all people because God desires all people to be saved. He says this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Our God is holy, just and righteous. And yet, as we see in Matthew 5, he is generous to all. He sends his rain on the just and the unjust. Psalm 145 tells you that he is loving to all he has made. We know that he so loved the world that sinners in rebellion against him that he gave his son to give us life. Our God genuinely desires all people to be saved. Now, this is not universalism, saying that all will be saved but it is inclusive. It's saying that anyone can be saved. There is no one you can think of, no group you can think of, whom God our Saviour does not want to save. No one is excluded. And he wants people to be saved by coming to a knowledge of the truth, that is, by coming to a knowledge of his Son, the Lord Jesus, through the Gospel of Jesus. So his people, believers in Jesus, you and I who have been given life and hope and forgiveness, who have been given the spirit of the Son whose first fruit is love, should be wanting this, also wanting all people to be saved and so praying that all people will hear the gospel so they can be saved. Now I know that this verse could start a conversation about why if God desires all people to be saved, all are not. And I'm happy to have that conversation with you. But for now, I just want you to hear what God says in his word. We should have no doubt as we come to pray what God wants. He desires all people to be saved through hearing and believing the gospel. 
And in his mercy, one of the means of that happening is the prayers of his people for the salvation of all people. We need to hear what he says so that we spend more time praying than debating. Secondly, Paul tells us God has made provision for the salvation of all through the death of his son. Verse 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. There is only one God and only one mediator, one who can reconcile us to God. Now a mediator is an intermediary who can effect a reconciliation between two parties, two estranged parties. And Paul says Jesus is that one who can bring us to God because in him God has come to, to us. Our Lord Jesus brings God and man together in himself. He is the mediator because of his person, the man Christ Jesus, a particular human yet always the son of God, taking on flesh, becoming a man. Now that's the great new thing that we celebrate. It's the event that assures us that he can bridge the gap between God and us, that he can understand us and make God known to us and, yes, that he can die in our place, in the place of the human. That's his work, to die as a ransom for all, to free us from the penalty and power of sin by giving himself in our place on the cross, paying the price of our freedom in his death. And it says that ransom is for all. Gave himself as a ransom for all. And again, the issue is not quantity. It's not saying every individual's debt has been paid automatically on the cross. No, it's speaking of the quality of Jesus' death. He has died for all kinds and types of people. All can be included in the benefit of his death. The nature of Jesus' death as the death of the Son of God means that it is sufficient for all. It can cover over the sins of all. Anyone who repents and believes can be included in what Jesus has done, can know Jesus died for them in their place. Now, if you're sitting here and you're not yet a believer, and that may be the case, Jesus this is a, not yet a believer in Jesus. This is a statement of invitation, not of exclusion. It's saying that you, whatever your background, whatever the wrong you've done, you can find in Jesus as you turn back to him and you confess that he is truly God's son and Lord, you can find in Jesus the one who can bring you peace with God. You can know in Jesus the love of the true God who would give his son to rescue you from what your sin, your ingratitude, your rebellion against God, your ignoring of God deserves. And if you want to know more about that, if you want to know about how Jesus can save you and bring you back to God and give you hope, well, come and talk. Talk to me or Andy or Clinton or the Christian you came with. But if you're a believer in Jesus, knowing that the Son has given himself as a ransom for all is a reason why you can pray confidently for the salvation of all. For the one true God has made provision in the death of his Son for the salvation of any 
and of all. The one God is the God of all. There is no other God for any. Jesus is the one mediator, is the only saviour. But as the only saviour, he is the saviour of all. And nowhere else is salvation than in faith in Jesus. But that salvation is there for all, all kinds and types of people. The purpose of God to be the saviour of all through his son is the second reason to pray. And knowing he is the effective saviour of all, why wouldn't you pray? And the third reason to convince us that God wants us to pray for all, that God desires the salvation of all, is that God has sent out messengers into the world to bring the saving gospel to all. For this I, writes Paul, was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The mission of God to call people from all backgrounds to himself is being realised by God raising up preachers of the gospel to go to all. And Paul is the prime and foundational example of this. God has made it clear once and for all through sending of Paul to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, that the gospel is for all peoples. (coughs) So here are three powerful reasons to convince us God wants all people to be saved and so we should be praying for the salvation of all people. And this is reinforced by understanding the purpose of our prayers for a particular subset of all people, for kings and all those in authority. Paul says we should pray that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The purpose of our prayers is an untroubled life that promotes the spread of the gospel. Uh, Peaceful and quiet here is not talking about inner peace, but it's talking about freedom from external turmoil and all the disruption it brings. You see, that turmoil hampers the spread of the gospel. Those of you who know Bruce and Kathy and seen how their translation work and their congregations have been disrupted by civil war in Cameroon, know how turmoil disrupts the work of the gospel. Those of you who stay in touch with what's happening in the church in China know that the current crackdown makes it difficult to spread the gospel. So we pray for this peace not for selfish purposes but for the purpose of God, that our lives might be godly and dignified in every way. Now, godly is a word that occurs often in the pastorals and it's a word that embraces both inner disposition and outward action, beliefs and behaviour. We want peace so that we are both free to believe in Jesus as Lord and also free to manifest, to show publicly our commitment to Jesus as Lord. You see, a godly life is a visible, not hidden way of life lived in the fear of the Lord. And the word dignified speaks of moral earnestness, honourable conduct. It's a life where we pursue godliness and so can be salt and light in our communities. Paul is speaking of a situation where believers can openly live for and speak of Jesus and so commend the gospel. Our peace and quiet that we look to as the result of our praying for rulers 
is peace and quiet that allows us not to live for ourselves, but for Jesus, visibly, openly, without constraint. A living that will serve the purpose of God, the purpose for which we pray, the salvation of others. And God, and verse 8 makes it clear that this command is addressed to a community, a community where they pray together as well as in private. For there's, isn't there, I mean, there's little opportunity, unless you're really confused, for anger and quarrelling to manifest where you're praying alone, right? So Paul addresses that anger and quarrelling when men pray to pray because Paul expects them to be praying all together. God commands us to pray and to pray for all peoples. Gathering together to pray for the gospel is obedience to our saving God. It's faithfully using the means he has given us to do the work he has entrusted to his people of making disciples of Jesus of all, of all nations. And prayer has good promises, especially prayer for the Lord's mission, the work of testifying to Jesus that he entrusted first to the apostles and then to those who will believe in him through their witness. Now listen to our Lord speaking to those apostles in the upper room and giving them great assurance about prayer. Whatever you ask in my name, he says, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Or again in verse 16, verse 23, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father, uh, ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. In Jesus' name here is not a formula that we tack on to the end of our prayers. It speaks of the one by whose authority we come to the Father with our requests. It speaks of coming to the Father as those who, by Jesus' call, are busy with Jesus' business, his mission of saving all those the Father has given him through the Spirit-empowered apostolic witness to Jesus. To come to the Father in Jesus' name is to pray according to our Lord's will as we are busy with his work. It's prayer for help where we're seeking to be fruitful by abiding in him, where we're seeking to make disciples by sharing the gospel the apostles preached, help where we're seeking the Father to be glorified as he exalts, glorifies Jesus, his Son, as the Saviour of the world. And where we are doing those things, these promises are for us. And we are to come with confidence that we will receive what we have asked. Truly, truly, says Jesus, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. There is no qualification or maybe. And John, in his letter, repeats this confidence we can have in him when we do this, when we come in Jesus' name, obedient to him, giving ourselves to his work. Verse 14 This is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we asked of him. Prayer, especially prayer for salvation, for the Lord Jesus to be glorified as the Lord and Saviour in the world. 
is commanded and it is supported by such good promises. Our God meets us in our weakness and longing in prayer. But there are more reasons to pray together for the advancement of the gospel. Prayer is both a test and a shaper, a moulder of a disciple's heart. Prayer reveals whether our longings are for our Lord's honour and purposes and it gives us opportunity to conform our longings to his will. When our Lord taught his disciples to pray, and, and that includes every one of us who believes in Jesus, when he taught his followers to pray, do you remember the first three requests? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are what a disciple says Jesus is to long for and to seek first of all from God our Father. And what are we asking for in these requests? Let's just take the first. Hallowed be your name. We are asking the Father to cause his name, his revelation of himself, who he has said he is, to be treated as holy. That is distinct, separate, different from all other names because wholly true. That is, in praying this, we're asking the Father to act in judgment and salvation in the world so that all will recognise and confess the truth of his name, of his revelation of himself. We're actually asking that all will tremble at his warnings, all believe his promises, all conform their lives to his truth because they know that he is the only almighty God. We're actually asking our Father to cause this to happen, yes, first in our lives, but we want the Father to cause this to happen throughout the world. And in a sense, the next two petitions speak of how God will cause his name to be treated as holy by establishing the reign of his Son over all and bringing all into conformity with his will. And again, we ask this, the kingdom come, that his will be done first for ourselves. We ask first that the Lord would reign amongst us and that we would all say, each day, not my will, but yours be done. But we're also asking this for the world, for its present and future. Our Lord Jesus teaches us to pray big prayers, common prayer for these things, Praying together as Jesus has taught us prioritises these longings, the longings of a disciple of Jesus in our common life. It orients our common life to God's purpose and glory. And prayer, common prayer, gathering for prayer is a public expression of our faith in the Lord Jesus that all authority is his in a world that wants to ignore and reject him. See, common prayer is a testament to the effectiveness of Jesus' work on the cross, that he brings us into the presence of the only almighty and holy God. And it's a witness to the goodness and certainty of his plan to make disciples of all nations through the preaching of the gospel. So I hope as you think of the commands and promises that accompany prayer, that you are convinced that prayer is good, prayer is necessary, that we should be praying for the salvation of all and we should be praying with confidence. But why have a whole congregational prayer meeting? 
Why isn't it enough that we just keep on doing what we're doing in private and small groups? Well, you should keep on praying in private and small groups. The Father hears and answers our prayers made in secret. But both the example of the Lord's people in scripture and history and some of the features of our own life together tell us it is good to be seeking to pray altogether. In the book of Acts, we see repeatedly believers gathering for prayer. You have one example read from Acts 4. When faced with a demand to stop preaching the gospel, when faced with the threats of a hostile and unbelieving leadership, believers gathered for prayer. And what they prayed, verse 29, what they prayed for, verse 29, was the spread of the gospel. They prayed for boldness in speaking the truth of Jesus and for the Lord to work mightily to confirm Jesus' authority as the bringer of the kingdom, the reign of God. And what we see in Acts has been repeated throughout history. The gathering of believers to pray, to ask God to act and save through the preaching of the gospel preceded and accompanied the wonderful preaching of the Wesleys and Whitfield in the 18th century, the revivals of the late 19th and early 20th century in the US and Wales and beyond, oh, and accompanied the beginning of Billy Graham's ministry last century. And you can pursue that link in the outline, uh, you can pursue that in the link that's contained in the outline to J. Edwin Orr's talk. But you don't have to embrace Orr's theology of revivals to see that repeatedly throughout the history of the Lord's people they have gathered to pray and to pray for the raising up of faithful gospel preachers and for God to show mercy to sinners by bringing them to believe. You just have to observe that it happened and it did and receive the encouragement of your brothers and sisters from the past to pray and pray together. But there are some particular features of our own context that's convinced us a common prayer meeting would be particularly appropriate for us now. We are, as a congregation, as a church, committed to the ministry of the word, aren't we? In public and private, and that's seen in the place given to preaching and teaching in all we do, from our Sunday gatherings to our growth groups to Sunday school to youth group. But in Acts chapter 6, the apostles described their ministry as prayer, and that comes first, prayer and the ministry of the word. And, and while we're all encouraged here to pray in private, and I trust that you do, we need to raise the public profile of prayer amongst us if we're to have a ministry amongst us that shares the apostles' priorities and is seen to share the apostles' priorities. Now, we have prayer in our services, but the nature of our meeting and the constraints under which it operates with lots of other things going on in our services means that we have limitations on prayer in our Sunday gatherings. We've had a faithful monthly prayer meeting on Saturday morning going on for over 17 years now, thanks to Ray and Sharmini and others. But the Saturday morning time slot means it's actually never really had more than eight to ten attending. Oh, for the last couple of years, Matt and Darcy have been running a missions prayer meeting. But again, never more than eight to ten. Praying together, especially prayer that's directly related to the mission of the apostles to take the gospel to all nations, 
has to become more prominent amongst us if we're to be faithful to the apostles' model of ministry, which is the God-given model of ministry. And so that's why we're moving to a time when we can hope more can come, that more can come out on a weekday night than Sunday Saturday morning. And that's why we're making it easier to attend, by removing for that week other demands made by the church on your time. And there are also unhelpful features of our culture, features that have insidiously, I think, influenced our thinking, worked their way into our minds that having a common prayer meeting, which is a meeting of the whole church, will counter. Let's think about them just for a minute. Our culture is determinedly secular. Removing God from involvement in the real world as if he's just a powerless fiction like a dumb idol. Coming together to ask God to act and save says exactly the opposite. It confesses the truth that actually he's in charge, he rules the world, his will is done, that he is living and hears and answers and acts in the world, in the lives of real people. Our culture says only the material, and for many that means what can be seen and touched, is real. Prayer says that the unseen God is real, the most real. He's actually the one on whom all else that's seen depends. Our culture says that if God's there, he's unknowable or indifferent. Prayer says that he is personal and committed and can be known and related to. Our culture prides itself on its self-sufficiency. We are more likely to turn to ourselves to solve our problems, to turn to our plans and techniques, even, say, in evangelism. Now, planning is helpful, but plans only prosper with the Lord's blessing. And our Lord has said that without him we can do nothing. We want to say publicly and often that we don't rely on ourselves. We rely on our living Saviour. We want to encourage a culture where we turn to God first and above all, trusting in his promises. Oh, and our culture is impatient, seeking immediate benefit in the present. Prayer for the big things, like the coming of our Lord Jesus or for the turning of the hearts of many to him. Persistent prayer says we trust him. We trust his promises that he will hear us and answer us according to his good will and in his own time. That we trust him even when we cannot see our prayers being answered in the immediate. Your prayer together encourages our patience as we wait for the Lord relying together on his promises. A church-wide prayer meeting says that as a church, we really do rely on the means God has given us, prayer and the ministry of the word, to do what he has commanded us, to make disciples of all nations. And we rely on these before anything else, any plan, any program, any learned skills. Oh, and a church-wide prayer meeting says that our God is not the dumb, lifeless fiction that many in our society make him out to be. He is the Lord. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord who hears and answers and acts. Oh, and finally, we need to make prayer more publicly prominent amongst us to counter the unbelief and the worldliness in our own hearts. 
You see, all true prayer exposes our hearts before the Lord, exposes our desires and our faith or lack of it. Praying for the big things, for the salvation of all people, for the Lord to cause his name to be treated as holy, for the kingdom to come, will ask us whether we really desire what our Lord desires and whether we really trust him to act and save. And prayers not answered can actually make us examine ourselves and turn perhaps from our sin and our wrong desires so that we reorient our hearts and lives to his program for us. Joining together to pray for all people to be saved, to ask the Lord to raise up and resource gospel workers, to cause his son to be confessed as Lord by many is right for us and now is the time. So when this prayer meeting starts next year in February, I think it's the 17th, Andy's got 19th, look in your diary, it's Wednesday, right? Come, okay? Change your routine. This concrete. Change your routine to be there. We've committed to this as a session for two years and we'll review it after that to see if it's serving its purpose of encouraging us to pray for the big things. And if you're wondering how this prayer meeting will work, that will be outlined in the newsletter that will come out, Lord willing, this week. So be praying. Be praying at home. Be praying in your growth groups. Be praying for the big things. But plan to come and pray together. Let's be a church that's committed as a church to prayer and the ministry of the word that shows we trust the Lord to be who he says he is, the one who hears and answers the prayers of his people, the one who shows the greatness of his grace and power in our weakness, the one who can give sight to those blinded by sin, who can make ears deafened by the cacophony of the lies of our society, hear the truth, the one who can give life to the dead, the one who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Let's be a church who knows not dismay and frustration, but the joy of prayers made in Jesus' name, where we are asking about Jesus' business. Let's be a prayer a church that knows the joys of prayers made in Jesus' name answered to Jesus' glory. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, help us not to be lazy, self-preoccupied or unbelieving. Move us to believe your promises. Move us to love our neighbours who are perishing. Move us, we pray, to do what you say and to pray, to pray for all people, to pray for their salvation because you are the God who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth and who has made provision for the salvation of all through the death of your loved son. Help us to trust you and pray. Amen.